Welcome to the Battleground Wisconsin podcast. My name is Matt Bruski and I'm the Deputy Director here at Citizen Action and welcome to another week from Wisconsin. We have our full panel this week, which means Jorna Taylor is here. Jorna is a nonprofit consultant here in Wisconsin. Jorna. Good morning, Matthew. Jorna is well-dressed and uh, ready for her Thursday here. We record every Thursday morning, and that means Robert Craig is sitting next to me. Robert's the executive director here at Citizen Action. Robert. Uh, good morning, everyone. So Robert is uh, just getting ready to get wound up, as always. So this week we have a number of topics, including a very special first guest, and that is U.S. Senator Tammy Baldwin. So we're very excited to have the senator join us. I am going to uh, state that Jorna is not going to be available for that section when we uh, talk with uh, Senator Baldwin. So if you don't hear uh, Jorna during our Tammy Baldwin interview... (laughs) It's not that Jorna had nothing to say, it's just she will not be here for that recording, but uh, the rest of the podcast, we will have the great insights of Jorna, including Paul Ryan Watch, which And the will... senator is awesome, and I'm sad I will miss her. Yeah, so um, without further ado, so we are very excited to have with us today United States Senator Tammy Baldwin. Senator, thanks for taking the time to join us here at the podcast. I'm delighted to, Thanks. So we're really excited to have you. Um, we ha- talk a lot about healthcare on this show, and uh, S- Senator Baldwin has been a longtime supporter of healthcare, dating back to her days in the legislature, supporter of single payer, um, a strong, strong advocate for expanding access to healthcare. And and so one of the reasons why we asked you to come on is um, we've talked a lot about the governor's refusal to accept the expanded Medicaid money. And you have been a longtime pusher on on that with him, including (laughs) sending multiple letters about um, why he hadn't accepted it and then wanting to make him account how many people have actually lost access to health care because of his decision. And so I hear you are back at it and, and back at him trying to find out what the latest numbers are. Could you tell us more about that? Absolutely. You know, um, our governor, sadly, has been just incredibly resistant to um, the Affordable Care Act and its um, promise to uh, greatly increase access to high-quality and affordable uh, care and coverage. And um, it was deeply saddening to me uh, in the early days of the implementation of the Affordable Care Act that our governor refused um, a 100 uh, percent federal investment in um, in Medicaid dollars to the state uh, it, that resulted in a huge number of Wisconsinites um, being removed from their Badger Care coverage and um, many falling through the cracks. The governor promised at the time that these individuals would be seamlessly moved into the um, federal marketplace that uh, the Affordable Care Act uh, set up. And indeed, he has never uh, shown evidence that that has happened. And uh, 
Meanwhile, we learned that Wisconsin is probably losing the equivalent of a billion dollars of federal investment in its health care program for the very most vulnerable Wisconsinites, having refused to accept uh, Medicaid expansion. Uh, so that that's sort of the scene setter for this. What I have been doing beyond urging uh, Governor Walker to accept those federal Medicaid expansion dollars and uh, uh, to create a state-based insurance marketplace rather than participating in the federal exchange, um, I've been urging the governor uh, to update Wisconsinites on how many people who were previously on Badger Care that he removed from Badger Care coverage um, have made it successfully into uh, the Affordable Care Act coverage. And I'm renewing my request because I just uh, very recently the Centers for Medicaid and Medicaid Services, otherwise known as CMS, has, has shared with the state enrollment data. So he can now report to us. Um, but our figures show that there are still tens of thousands of Wisconsinites who were kicked off Badger Care and have not yet obtained health coverage and are likely uninsured. Senator, this is uh, Robert Craig. So you, what you point out in your letter is, is that the federal government in the waiver of proof for the Walker administration actually provided the tools and did so again for them to tell us how this policy is working because he has promised that the folks he forced off Badger Care would seamlessly, as you said, transition into the federal marketplace. But they have not released this information at all. And of course, no news is very disturbing and makes you wonder what's really going on. And, and certainly the public has a right to know how his policy is, is going for tens of thousands of Wisconsin families who need access to quality, affordable health care. Precisely. And, you know, is it very important to me during that waiver process to impress upon uh, folks over at the Department of Health and Human Services that they needed to require transparency and reporting out of the states, um, including Wisconsin, especially given the fact that our governor refused uh, the Medicaid um, expansion and the Medicaid dollars that would flow from the federal government and left so many Wisconsin families in the lurch. And, uh, you know, it seems to me uh, not only uh, appropriate, but absolutely necessary for transparency and for advocacy for those families that have been left in the lurch that the governor um, report. Uh, uh, you know, he made a lot of promises to the people of Wisconsin when he sort of set up his own alternative to the Affordable Care Act uh, and criticized so strongly uh, the president's um, signature health uh, plan. And uh, he needs to be held accountable for the promises that he made. So we're very glad that you, uh, you are using your bully pulpit as a U.S. senator to bring attention to this because you, more than anyone else, know what's happening at the federal and state level for Wisconsin and what kind of arrangements were made and what, what should be expected. Um, also, 
I wonder if you want to comment on the fact that President Obama has actually sweetened the deal. The billion-dollar number you cited for what we're leaving on the table assumes that uh, the federal government is paying 90% rather than 100% moving forward. President Obama has announced that in, they've announced in his budget it's going to be 100% for the first three years whenever a state enters. So it's going to be even more money um, offered if, for Wisconsin if we would take the money for Badger Care. Yes, and that was a very exciting announcement to hear from the president. Um, I am absolutely delighted. I think it's exactly the right thing to do. And, and so what it does is it presents a new opportunity for Governor Walker and um, other governors who have refused to accept uh, or refused to expand Medicaid in their states to take a new look at this. You know, back when um, Governor Walker rejected uh, uh, these funds and rejected Medicaid expansion, um, he was saying things like, well, uh, you know, the Affordable Care Act is going to be repealed by Congress. Um, uh, it hasn't happened, and I do not believe it's going to happen. And so uh, now that we uh, have seen um, the, the politics play out on this, it is high time that the governor take a new look at this and say it is time for Wisconsin to expand Medicaid. Now, governors in 31 states uh, in the United States have uh, chosen to expand uh, Medicaid, and that includes um, 10 Republican governors who previously uh, were in the same posture as Governor Walker but sort of took a new look. Um, it's time for for Governor Walker to take a new look and recognize that we can uh, we can ensure um, we can cover more Wisconsin families, including the tens of thousands that he um, you know removed from the Badger Care program. Um, we can provide them with high quality uh, health coverage. You mentioned uh, before that you hope the governor takes a new look. Obviously, if uh, Republicans could repeal the Affordable Care Act 62 times, we could certainly take another look at accepting the Medicaid money. I, I do have a, a question for you. Robert mentioned you know, you have an, a, a unique eye on what's happening at the federal level. So they repealed it, put it on Obama's desk. Have you, do you have any, any uh, sense as to whether they actually might put something in play, a replacement plan in the Senate or in uh, in Congress anywhere this year? We continue to wait, or do, is this just going to be more political theater? Yeah, well, so most of those 62 attempts to repeal or defund the Affordable Care Act um, didn't make it through both houses and never landed on the president's desk. But they finally, last uh, this, this past week, did send something to the president's desk, and we know he's going to veto it. Um, it's unclear to me uh, whether the leadership in uh, the, the House and the Senate will continue to, you know, try to do this 62 more times, or whether they um, plan on uh, turning to the very urgent other needs that this country has for Congress to address. Um, I know a lot of the folks who have made this um, 
animosity to the Affordable Care Act uh, sort of signature issue have sort of said, well, now we're going to wait until after the next presidential election and, and look at um, uh, what's going to happen here. It's hard to predict how some of these folks are going to, you know, behave this year. Um, my hope is that we um, can get to the serious and urgent um, issues that are before us. And, and, and in the healthcare arena, to me, that includes, um, you know, looking at how uh, the Affordable Care Act is working and how um, we can build upon it and improve upon it, because no legislation that's passed is perfect. And uh, this, this effort to um, repeal and defund has really diverted our attention to making, uh, you know, making some improvements. Um, of course, Governors like Scott Walker have also frustrated our efforts uh, because, uh, you know, he has uh, obstructed at every turn. Senator, uh, this is Robert. Uh, we couldn't agree more. Uh, we've been saying for a, a while that uh, this endless debate over what we did in 2010 over common step, you know, advances that, that outlaw discrimination and guarantee that almost everyone has somewhere to go get health care no matter what. This debate over and over again prevents us from moving to the next issues in health care reform, which is cost, because cost is still much too high for most people yeah. and still rising far too much. And it reminds me of another topic you're working on I wanted you to briefly mention. I should, I'd be remiss if I didn't point out you're a former board member of Citizen Action Wisconsin, so let me throw that yes, in. Yes, <laughs> but the other area, the only area I can think of where cost has been uh, as rising as quickly and has been out, as out of control uh, as healthcare is higher education. And I know you've been working on college affordability, so I wonder if you could, and it's a big issue in, in Wisconsin, I wonder if you could tell our listeners a little bit about that and what you're working on. Yeah, and, and with this issue, too, I want to sort of start by setting the scene, which is um, if, when you look at the aggregate debt that this recent generation of college students and college graduates has incurred just to get um, a higher education, it uh, a few years ago uh, exceeded uh, credit card debt in America, and then it exceeded credit card and automobile uh, debt. It is around $1.3 trillion today. That's a staggering number. The only uh, only thing that exceeds that uh, in terms of privately held debt is, is people's mortgages uh, in aggregate. But we're talking about young people starting their careers with tens of thousands of dollars in debt just to have gotten the degree uh, to get their start in life. And that's uh, a relatively new phenomenon. Um, and in order to address it in a comprehensive way, I think we have to look at three, um, three main things. One is, how do we provide some relief to those who have, you know, already incurred the debt, either have their degree and are paying, are trying to, struggling to pay it off, or are still getting their degrees but incurring more and more debt? So that's number one. Number two, um, how do we help the next generation still realize the promise of a college education um, and be able to manage that without emerging with these mountains of, of bills uh, uh, in terms of, of student debt. And thirdly, how do we hold the institutions appropriately accountable uh, so that um, they are not 
simply inflating their um, their tuition. Now, in some cases, it's because of, uh, in terms of state institutions, it's because there's been huge divestment by the states um, in terms of crippling budget cuts. Um, but in other instances, there's been some institutions that have really taken advantage of things like the um, the, the GI bill that provides um, uh, returning service members with uh, access to college education. Uh, you know, there's there's a, a, some some small number of institutions that have been taking advantage of people, taking advantage of, of students who simply want to get ahead. And, and we, so we have to ferret out those bad actors, too. So those are the sort of three big pillars. With regard to aggregate uh, student debt, um, one of the things that we note over and over again is it's the only type of debt that um, law prohibits somebody from discharging in bankruptcy court, and that law prohibits people from refinancing. And with regard to that latter provision, that just doesn't make sense. Um, you know, it's important that uh, pre the president is um, uh, doing such a good job of trying to get income-based repayment uh, established more widely, but we need to allow people who have uh, student debts uh, at very high interest rates to refinance to, to lower uh, today, you know, to, to today's lower interest rates. And a bill that I've uh, joined efforts with um, Elizabeth Warren in sponsoring is going to be our main uh, main focus in that area. The, the second area of uh, of access for future generations. Um, uh, in my mind, we really have to thank our commitment to um, to public financing of, of education. And what I mean when I say that is a century ago in our nation, we made a commitment to K-12 education. We realized that people needed uh, 12 years of school to really have a career, to really get a great start in life, to strengthen our democracy, that elementary school wasn't enough, um, which was previously the, the standard. So a century ago, we decided that. We all know that in the 21st century, in a very high-skills economy, that young people need more. Um, I have introduced legislation inspired by the president's call during his State of the Union address a year ago to grant tuition-free um, education for the first two years at a community college or a technical college. Um, I think that would reflect better the current reality um, uh, in America's high-tech economy, uh, high-skills economy, that we need um, a, a greater commitment to educational preparation. Uh, Senator, I, I think it's great that you're thinking about this comprehensively. You're thinking about uh, the debt that people have now, young people who have gone to college or about to graduate from college. You're thinking about access for the next group of college students, but you're also thinking about the fundamental problem, disinvestment and, and higher education costs overall, and the fact that having a college degree now is a necessity in, in the modern economy. Otherwise, you can't get a family-supporting job. And so I know it's going to be different, but eventually there has to be some sort of understanding that 
uh, our society is going to make sufficient public investments, but there's accountability on the other end in terms of cost. And I know the system will be different, but in Medicare, what we say is we say that all seniors will have a way to pay for, for, for medical care, but that hospitals and doctors will will accept what is a what is a, the, the legitimate amount that the care should cost based on real evidence. And so we may need to think in higher ed how we how we we build that kind of social contract between uh, our great higher education institutions and the, and the people of our country. You know, absolutely. And, you know, we didn't talk about the accountability measures that we're going to be pushing, but part of it just has to do with greater transparency. And, you know, there's been resistance among some of the um, institutions of higher education because they say, well, it's not an apples-to-apples -apples, uh, comparison between this type of college and that type of college and this university and that university. But nevertheless, I think it's so important as people make really consequential choices about their education and about their future, that we know, you know, how many students get jobs in their chosen field? How long does it take for them to get jobs? What is that degree worth? Uh, and, um, you know, what's What's the graduation rate? All sorts of questions that you should have access to as you're deciding where you want to pursue a higher education, not uh, uh, years after you've already gone through. Senator, we want to thank you very much for joining us today and, and enlightening us on these two very important topics. We very much appreciate it. Well, I really appreciate your interest and your coverage. Thank you so much. Okay, great. Well, hopefully we'll chat with you further down the road. Thank you very much. Sounds great. Thank you, Senator. All right. Bye-bye. So obviously, um, we, we're, we're really glad that Senator Baldwin took the time to join us, but we must get back to the other topics at hand in this state. And unfortunately, as we have talked about in uh, the last few uh, weeks, the, the craziness of the Republicans in the state legislature has been on a uh, huge display. So we have a number of topics that um, get to that point. And the first one is around a very lousy piece of legislation um, that is being introduced by Senate President Mary Lazich and um, also um, uh, Representative Brooks. Uh, this bill would allow those with concealed carry permits to carry guns on school grounds. And just to be clear, that is currently not allowed in the concealed carry that was passed. It was, it was actually a very public part of the passing of that legislation, the discussion that that would not be allowed um, and how that was not thought to be a good idea. Uh, this, this bill does go further. In addition, it will allow school boards to determine whether guns could actually be allowed to be carried by anyone concealed in the schools. So that decision will be left up to local school boards. And by the way, if they decide that they think this is a really stupid idea to allow guns in schools, they then have to put up signs on the front of their schools stating that you can't carry guns into the schools. Jorna, holy shit. No, really. I mean, uh, uh, look, Tom Barrett, he's out there. He called it insane, right? Tom Barrett's not someone who runs around calling things it insane knew. all the no, time, exactly. right? So... Uh, so, so you started out with the cursing, and I was, I was going to do my best to temper my, um, my, you know, 
saved for the war room campaign comments saved for the back of the bar, you know. Yeah, apparently this show will never make radio with me really, around yeah, dropping FCC words like not, shit. Yes, like us. But I apologize. So, so let me just be very clear uh, what the rationalization has been from the majority party here in Wisconsin for introducing this bill. Uh, Senate President Mary Lazich said, quote, I don't want to see that happen to well-intentioned law-abiding people if they basically stating that if folks forget to, you know, unstrap yes. <laughs> before they drop their kids off, they're going to be breaking the law. So, she, you know, and then Robert Brooks said that he doesn't think they realize that they are breaking the law. I'm sorry, but I'm going to call malarkey on this logic. This is not, this is in no way about the poor parents that just forgot to, you know, take off their concealed carry weapon. This is all about the NRA and big money and how somehow conservatives think that if we put more guns in schools, we're going to have less shooting. Ridiculous. It's bullshit. Well, well uh, Robert, um, to say what do you have to say? Well, I think Tom Barrett's comments are a little unfair to mentally ill folks in our society. Um, it, look, this is like an, a Western movie or something. Uh, remember, there are towns, at least according to Western movies, where the sheriffs made you hand in your gun belt when you entered the town. So the schools that decide not to do this have to allow the guns on their grounds, but then are they going to have a big bin for the guns to be dropped in uh, for the visiting like party. gunslinging parents? and other gunslinging people that might be visiting the school. And so this is like gun culture gone crazy. And we need to draw a sharp distinction between traditional use of guns in American society, hunting, personal safety, uh, under appropriate safeguards and conditions, versus this. And I think it's very important that because of the NRA's propagandistic power and their ability to convince a lot of law-abiding citizens, the real law-abiding citizens, uh, that somehow their right to hunt is going to be undermined by basic gun safety, uh, to use this. Because a lot of those folks certainly don't want people running around with guns in their schools where their kids are going to school. Okay, So we shouldn't totally wig out. We should see this as an opportunity to, to explain exactly who these folks are and how craven they are and what the implication of their, of their ideology is. And so it's kind of amazing. I mean, uh, the, the, mass, the mass murders, a lot of the mass murders have become kind of a black swan that have, have, have reopened a debate that was closed by the NRA a decade ago. Uh, but this is uh, this is a, an important conversation to have. So we at least need to thank Mary Lazich uh, for making it clear what she believes and making it possible for us to uh, talk about that. L let me take on. There's two points I want to bring up. One is Jesse Kramer, state rep, who he, he basically calls schools soft targets, right? Like, I mean, this kind of rhetoric is is crazy, okay, and and needs to be exposed and hopefully shown to be not at all majoritarian position. But this whole piece of legislation actually brings up a really important point in the gun debate and talking about gun owners' rights and gun safety and how smart gun owners have to be about taking care of their guns, particularly in homes. And I, you know, I know people who actually, you know, who carry guns and the level of sophistication and thought that has to go into your plans around the safety around that gun, right? This talks about it as if these people are completely careless, flippant, and would just 
recklessly be concealed carrying, walking into schools, around property, in a, in a way that, quite frankly, shows a carelessness and dangerousness. That's not a word, I don't believe. But that is exactly the concern people have about the proliferation of guns, right? That somehow we're going to have a law that protects carelessness and sloppiness and, quite frankly, not very adult behavior on the behalf of adults' parents, right, who might actually who mindlessly carry their gun and put themselves into the situation and that their priorities trump the kids, the, the other, the vast majority of parents and everybody else. And by the way, public, public safety officials do not support this kind of stuff, right? And, and can you imagine, can you imagine just this kind of scenario where, 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 where this kind of mayhem happens, at, at, you know, at a school? It's, it's crazy to me. And... Remember, there is a dog whistle here. I want us to be good about pointing out the racial component of this. Uh, when you decide you're going to uh, uh, create a felony for people committing food stamp fraud, so people trying to eat too much, right? But you're going to say, oh, the poor gun owner, he wouldn't know he couldn't go on school la- property. Of course, the image in people's minds is a person of color scamming the system when they're, when they're, when they're throwing down the book. And then some... Law-abiding citizen is code for upright, righteous, suburban suburban white person that's like us that could never do do no wrong, and therefore we need to protect them by from themselves basically by allowing them to go on school grounds or further with guns. So this is all this is all very revealing of the ideology. Uh, I want one more thing on this, and I I am a bit wound up. I'm more like Robert today on this, but. Um, maybe it's because my kids are in school and I'm just thinking about this scenario right now and it makes me inc- have a tremendous level of anxiety. Um, it's very personal. but So there's one other thing here, and I actually maybe we should consider it here at Citizen Action, but Lazic specifically says the reason they're doing this is because tons of people from local school boards came out and you know basically demanded this, right? There are a couple... Um, folks from local uh, uh, school board, local districts that actually comment in their support. I'd actually love to see an open records on actually who really came forward. I'd like to see what the public outpouring was for this, right? Or was this just a few people who are basically nuts and thinking of soft targets, right? You know, that kind of person versus a real legitimate upswell coming from school districts that they were looking for this anyways. It's this this whole legislation is ridiculous, and it actually connects to one of our next topics, and that is that is Bob Gannon, right? Like we can't stop talking about Jorna. Lewis Cannon, Bob Gannon. Oh my gosh! And you know, you you can't help when we're talking about this previous issue as as Jerry Bonavia from Wave, which is the anti gun violence and anti gun violence uh, organization here in Wisconsin, points out. Imagine Bob Gannon, who this week I think very publicly everyone heard about, flipped off Peter Barca, went crazy on the floor, right? Apparently has a wild temper, right? Think about him entering your your school district, right? But um, wanted to bring up and thank a lot of the representatives from Milwaukee who have had had not only floor speeches, David Bowen, press releases, really calling out this for what it is, that it's it's racist, and, well, one, and also a complete misreading of the economy and how the economy works, right? So, which is, unfortunately, right, like, 
the race thing is what just trumps everything. Um, but complete lack of reading also on our economy, which uh, kudos to David Bowen, Mandela Barnes, uh, Joe Castazamaripa, and a whole host of other folks who have really been out public calling out this activity for what it is. I am waiting for the emergency alert. Uh, Bob Gannon has appear- arrived at your school and he's armed, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which would oh. be legal under Senator Lazich's yeah, bill. And, and by the way, uh, he's, he's hanging out with uh, Jesse Kremer, right? Like, right, holy they're both armed. Shit. Uh, and then I, one other thing on the race question before Jorna takes off on, on uh, Mr. Gannon. Imagine if Black Lives Matter protesters, Occupy Wall Street protesters, anyone who looks at all Middle Eastern appeared at the Slinger schools with uh, carrying their guns into school as allowed by uh, the Lasich bill, uh, how those rights would be respected. So obviously you're both right. I want to just talk for a moment about the civility or lack thereof that has been allowed to be perpetrated in the state assembly. You know, loose cannon offered up a, you know, weak, meek and very insincere apology. Um, but let's be honest, he is not apologizing in any way. I don't think... Was it like a Fonz apology from Happy Days? Right? (laughs) (laughs) Hashtag... uh, 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 (laughs) Apol... He's hashtag sorry, not sorry. Um, (laughs) You know, and I don't think, while his remarks are inflammatory and all of that, he's very Ann Coulter-esque, in my opinion, where he's he's not a dumb guy. And going into this very hotly contested presidential election in a year when we've got hot races up and down the ballot in Wisconsin, he's... He's doing his best to point out that Milwaukee is this horrible cesspool of, you know, badness and scumbags. And he's he's really doing his best to further all of the dog whistle politics and the race baiting and things that conservatives just love to do. And he's just willing to be out there and not even have it as racially coded language. He's just saying it. My gosh, you're basically saying he is Scott Walker's Donald Trump. Um, You know, he's basically saying everything that Scott Walker campaigned on. Uh, you know, so I don't think that this is not, I mean, I think that some of it's a little over the top that he didn't quite plan it that way, but um, I mean, it's all over the top. Let me be very clear. It's all over the top and ridiculous, but I don't think that it is necessarily not a strategic move on his part. Well, I think we owe Representative Gannon a debt of gratitude for his refreshing honesty. <laughs> and unlike the right-wing talk shows in Milwaukee area when, and in the rest of Wisconsin that are in complete denial and use race while pretending not to use race, unlike Walker, who talks about dependency instead of black people and, uh, and, and, uh, and Hispanic people, Bob Gannon has, has stated it flat out. And uh, you'll know, I, I assume Mr. Gannon's running for re-election, that this isn't a problem if he isn't even challenged in his primary. Well, and you you notice that none of the leadership from his party really denounced or said that, oh, you really shouldn't flip off another member, colleague in the body that, you know, you work in and represent constituents in. I mean, again, you know, Robert, you mentioned if this were Black Lives Matters that showed up, you know, in suburban West Bend and had a gun. It had... Mandela Barnes or David Bowen or Joe Costa Zamaripa flipped off somebody in the majority party. Ho, 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 ho. Can you even imagine what Charlie Sykes would say? Well, then we'd have the standard that uh, that the, the the policeman involved felt threatened, so it was a good kill, and there'll be no grand jury indictment. Okay, is that what we'd be talking about here? Well, 
We laugh, but that is not far from the truth. No, I know. So with that, we are going to, you got, you were all mentioning elections. I want to talk about a piece of legislation that is going to go absolutely nowhere. I was going to say that has zero chance. Right? But but it's really important for uh, for a number of reasons. One is it exposes sort of, you know, what the true intent was of the series of uh, bills that have passed over the last four years by Republicans to basically squeeze our democracy and, and limit the franchise. Um Democrats from Milwaukee introduced a bill this week or sending it around for, for folks to get on in support that would essentially allow us to expand the early voting in terms of the amount of facilities that a municipality could choose on its own to, to run in order to better accommodate folks throughout large cities like Milwaukee or other areas of the state. I'm sure there's other parallels in rural areas where people might have to travel a long area. But that being said, this thing will probably go nowhere. And the irony, right, that a bill like this about trying to expand people's access to democracy will get crushed. But yet we just talked about a concealed carry bill that will expand local control and the ability to determine about whether you can carry guns in schools, right? So, But this bill, which would basically allow locals to make a decision about trying to get more people to vote, will not pass. And obviously it's part of what's wrong. I'd be shocked if it even has a committee hearing, to be honest with you. Um, you know, we've been trying this in Milwaukee for years, frankly, to expand the locations, number of, and locations of early vote. I mean, I early voted in 2008 and stood in line oh, for the lines were long. You know, three hours outside of um, the Milwaukee City Hall. And you know, that was great. And that was in Milwaukee. And there were people from all across the city that didn't have that time to take off. And and why are we trying to disenfranchise people? Why are we trying to overload the polls on election day, especially in 2016, when we're going to have elevated turnout over a midterm year? But no, because we don't actually want people to vote. So that's cool. Because everything else is convenient. If you want to make a consumer purchase or anything else, right? You, you want to do bank activity now. You don't need you don't need to go pay do your utility bill on Tuesdays at a location anymore. I don't even need to deposit my check into an actual bank. I can take a picture of it from my smartphone. Right, I know. And so it, it just reminds us that the modern conservative movement thinks that it holding power because there's an authoritarian strain of it, is more important than the mo one of the most fundamental things in American democracy, that is voting. And it reminds me, even taking a step back further, I was uh, prepping for an international relations talk show I'm, I'm on this weekend. Taiwan's having big elections on Saturday. Well, there's a country that actually wants people to vote. So we should also be questioning that, right? This, and now, of course, absentee voting and uh, helps with that, and early voting helps with that. But you see the point, right? Saturday. Right. Well, maybe they actually want their citizens to participate in their democracy. I don't Shocking. understand this participation word you speak of. So, Jorna. Matt. It's our favorite time of the podcast. It is Paul Ryan Watch. Ryan Watch. So what do we have uh, on Paul Ryan this week? Um, I'm annoyed uh -oh. with Mr. Ryan, oh, with no. the speaker. But you like Paul Ryan. <sighs> this is your favorite segment. Oh, he, he did, did shave. He, he was did shaved. Shave. He is no longer on Beard Watch, um, which I think the hearts, I can see the hearts breaking across the country of, of young men and women everywhere. 
Um, so oh, he well, want the young men to be. The, but the, hey, the, beard, the, the beardless, hipsterless Ryan looked a little um, unhappy he at the unha- state of the state, so, state, no, state of the, of the union. union. Excuse me. So right, I nation. will say one thing about uh, former Speaker Boehner, who was you know overly tanned and overly botoxed, so he probably didn't have facial expressions. Miss that guy. <laughs> I miss that guy. I missed him when I was watching the State of the <laughs> Union because at least he had decorum, and I'll be honest, it was disheartening to see whether or not you support the president and his policies, Paul Ryan was fidgety through the entire thing. He was smirking. He kept leaning over to Uncle Joe and, I don't know, was like chatting away about what? They were going to go get drinks afterward or something? He didn't clap for the president on things like we should invest in cancer research. What are you, pro-cancer, Paul Ryan? I mean, just in general, it was... um, it was disheartening to see that, once again, there can't be any decorum in a legislative body, and we can't show respect for the highest office in the country. And, P.S., he didn't get the memo about striped ties. Oh, yes. Saying. We always appreciate Jordan's <laughs> fashion Speaking insights. of the presidency, he also said afterwards that Obama's speech degraded the presidency, quote-unquote, because of the... Uh, veiled remark about Donald Trump, which was the president blasted as un-American and wrong-headed those who are, quote, promising to restore past glory if we just got some groups or idea that was threatening America under control. So that apparently that, quote, degraded the presidency. <laughs> I'm sorry, because Donald Trump as president wouldn't degrade the presidency. Look, that, oh, my and God. And because the Republican Party, through its official response, used uh, South Carolina Governor Nick, uh, Nikki Haley to attack Trump. Oh so the official yeah. Republican response can attack Trump, which will is backfiring because now it's it's revving up Trump supporters even further. So not, not a smart move, Rents Priebus and company. But now President Obama is degrading the presidency. Look, Look, here's the reality, and um, a shout-out to, um, I think it's CBS this morning, Um, John, I think John Nickerson was interviewing Paul Ryan and just flat-out asked him about, well, you're coming off a week where you had announced that this was going to be a a, a new leadership and we weren't going to just do things that were strictly political and then you vote for the 62nd time to repeal the Affordable Care Act, and you don't have any plan. And he caught Ryan. Ryan just sat there and basically agreed, you're right, it, it, we, did, we didn't have anything, and we need to come up and have ideas. So it, it, it just shows, right, this is, they're not off to a great start, right? I mean, and uh, we'll, Paul Ryan obviously didn't look very happy this week, Jorna. I know we're having fun with him here on the show. We'll continue to track the exploits of, mm-hmm. of Ryan and what the Republicans are doing as we head into this uh, presidential year. Well, he's certainly taking a tack toward moving further to the right after he said he was willing to work with folks from both parties. He is certainly um, feeling the pressure from the, what does Robert call it, the crazy right wing? Oh, the uh, flying monkey right? The flying monkey right to, to not do that and to be polarizing. So before we uh, get into our furloughs, I, I do want to mention uh, there was news this week related to WEDAC and uh, Governor Walker. As I think folks remember, one of the uh, scandals around WEDAC 
is that this summer the State Journal had been trying to request copies of text messages from former Department of Administration aid related to a failed half-a-million-dollar loan that WIDEC gave, and to this day still has been unable to get these text messages. And a uh, shout-out to, to Greg Newman, who... Uh, had an excellent order from Channel Twenty Seven. Exactly, and we'll, we have a link to that on on the podcast. You know, flat out said, right? Like he appears to be completely disconnected from his administration because he's continuing to publicly state that these that is not his policy. These should be available, but has no answer when said. Well, then why aren't these texts available, right? And and, and it just shows again this flawed model of WEDEC that this guy created. This was his one of his pet projects that he kicked off in his first month of being elected and now like it's he's completely disconnected to the point where he's not even in 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 charge anymore or we know he is but he's feigning that and somehow that that's an uh an adequate response for how we're spending our precious economic dollars well i guess it's better than him claiming that he's admitting that he's suppressing them in any way i'm sure that the text messages are very fun Hey, big guy, we got half a million for you. I, I want two million. What went on? <laughs> what gives? Can we well, just have a and what about those Badger tickets? Brown paper bag of non-consecutive, unmarked. By the way, I can assure you the um, the interview clips between Greg Newman and uh, Scott Walker, not quite that chummy. You can tell uh, Walker, if he could, if he was able to, would just reach over and punch Greg Newman in the face for even daring ask these questions. It's reminiscent of Trump uh, saying that he uh, he's tempted, but he wouldn't kill journalists like Putin did, right? uh, yes. Putin does, or like they do in China. Well, as long as he keeps his shirt on, right? So with that, um, we're obviously going to continue to track the exploits of uh, Weedek. Jorna, what are you doing this weekend? This weekend, I am going to spend some time with everybody's favorite horses. George. And Reno. Reno doesn't exist. He does. Uh, but I'm also going to spend much, much time preparing for the Wisconsin Hunter Jumper Association Annual Awards Banquet, which is in a week. What do you hunt in that group? <laughs> 50 Cent Ribbons. Ah, there you go. Robert, what are you doing? Well, I am stunned that Jorna is not monogamous with her with her horses. Oh, Ouch. <laughs> Robert. I don't know why you all hate on Reno. Reno would love you both because uh, Reno loves everyone. George, I got your back. Don't worry. Reno Listen. will be gone. It'll happen before season starts. Robert, what are you doing? So um, I made a large purchase, large, I would say, as in heavy oh folks you're gonna love this oh, does matt even know what this is, uh, this um, is we know we i know so i've purchased an elliptical machine which is being delivered on saturday and i decided to cancel the assembly service the assembly company was not very didn't didn't spur confidence how'd that work out how'd me. that go well it hasn't gone yet oh okay it's Sorry. arriving saturday oh i thought it arrived last and night. so Delano, my nephew and I, Delano has agreed uh, to are going to try to assemble uh, this 250-pound uh, piece of equipment. Oh my! And then after it works, it'll go work great. I, I will then get to cancel my gym membership. So, so just to be clear, Robert did not read the fine print that said people's people with doctorates in rhetoric are not allowed to assemble this elliptical equipment. I mean, I don't even have a doctorate in rhetoric <laughs> or a doctorate in anything other than horse showing and. I know I couldn't assemble oh, something. Oh boy! Well, Where Del, are all these 
there were all these reviews online which said, my husband hadn't come home and I did it myself. Oh. So I have a feeling these reviews probably aren't uh, real people. But well, you, have, you, have, you, have, you have set yourself up for a check-in next week on how this went. Delano, who, by the way, volunteers a lot in this office, and we love Delano, uh, you got your work cut out for you. Good luck this weekend. So this weekend... I will be um, spending some time at the three-hour ice race, which is a, a very famous ice race up here in the West Bend area, speaking of crazy gun owners, right? Uh, that uh, all, all the money goes to benefit injured riders uh, who, who race flat track around the country. So I will be taking my son and uh, going up with some friends up there on Sunday. Very much looking forward to it. Should be fun. Never been there. So with that... I want to thank Brian Wildridge, who makes the podcast happen every week. And as always, um, I want to thank our panel and uh, thank Senator Tammy Baldwin for joining us this week. And we'll see everybody here next week at the Battleground Wisconsin. <laughs>